the ritual that connect us to the land of Israel are spread throughout Jewish tradition. And it leads them to be part of this unfolding story. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am sitting here in Jerusalem uh, a few days before Yom Atzmaut, Israel Independence Day. This is uh, This Pardes Life. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and it is my privilege to be here with a very close, dear friend and colleague and sometimes teacher, uh, my friend Mark Rosenberg, who is the director of Pre-Aliyah at Nefesh Benefesh, a Aliyah professional, so it's appropriate we have him on at this time, but also a Torah teacher, and a Torah teacher who has taught on many Pardes programs. So he brings a lot of different perspectives and insight uh, into what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Mark Rosenberg. Thank you very much. I get to use the line, I'm a long-time listener, a first-time uh, guest. That's true. You are a first-time. Maybe this will be the beginning of a whole, a whole series. Uh, and a hello to everyone who's washing their dishes, dishes listening to the podcast. I, myself, am a, uh, a big devotee to uh, all the wonderful Torah content and uh, interesting things you're talking about. Thank you. Wow, excellent. That was uh, an unpaid plug, everyone. Okay, Mark, uh, we're going to get into the text that you brought, and of course, through that, uh, have a conversation, I think, with you. You're in a unique position to talk about uh, contemporary Judaism and Zionism, uh, and where you see things, how they are, where you'd like them to get to. So let's get started. What what text did you pick for us today? So I thought it was appropriate. We are here um, between that the, the, what's often referred to as the modern High Holy Days, uh, between Yom HaShoah, Israel's um, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and Yom HaZikron uh, Memorial Day and Yom HaZikron Independence Day. So I thought it would be appropriate to bring the prayer for the State of Israel, Tefillat L'Shalom HaMindina. Terrific. Do you, can you give us a little background about when this prayer was authored or when it started to be said? Sure. Um, naturally, um, the, the prayer came about 70 years ago um, it, with the a, a reestablishment or establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948. Um, the prayer, the text that I brought, is, um, is, is authored um, by the chief rabbis. Many uh, people will say it was, it was uh, both Chief Rabbis Herzog and Uziel, the Sephardic and Ashkenazi chief rabbis, but it's interesting, in some of the research I did, they said they, um, um, Shai Agnon, the Nobel laureate um, uh, in literature, had a hand in writing some of the draft. Um, it has changed slight, uh, slight variations over time, and that's one of the things we'll talk about. But it was really um, it was published um, in 1948, and it took a little bit of evolution um, to, to get out there. Um, and it's, um, it's in its current form has really stayed for the past uh, 40, 45 years. Okay, maybe you could, uh, do you have it in English there? Sure. Maybe you could just read through it, and even not all of it, but the sections you think are most relevant for us to discuss. Uh, I'll also, I'll, it'll, it should be up on the website uh, with the podcast for those who want to look at the text. Okay, great. Um, I think that uh, it's um, always interesting uh, reading in English. I think it was the poet laureate in Israel, Chaim Nachman Bialik, who said, reading in translation is like kissing through a veil. Mm. You miss the essence of the kiss. Um, so I will uh, begin reading it just to say there are four essential parts to the tefillah. The first is the main prayer for the state to have peace. 
um, a small transition to talk about um, a, a prayer to strengthen the advisors and leaders. Um, in the, the main text, and we'll talk about how some people cut this part out, um, a prayer for the ingathering of the diaspora, uh, those who are in exile. And then there's a nice conclusion that the full redemption should happen and a, a, prayer, a small prayer for peace at the end. Um, this is uh, the translation that I have. Our Father in heaven, rock of Israel and its redeemer, bless the state of Israel, the first flowering of our, our redemption, Shielded under wings of your kindness and spread over the tabernacle of your peace and send your light and truth upon its leaders, ministers, and advisors and direct them with good counsel before you. Strengthen the hands of the defenders of the Holy Land and grant them deliverance, our God, and crown them with the crown of victory. Grant peace to the land and everlasting joy to its inhabitants. As for our brothers, the whole house of Israel, remember them in all the lands of their dispersion and swiftly lead them upright to Zion, your city, and Jerusalem, your dwelling place, as is written in the Torah of Moses, your servant, even if you're scattered to the furthermost lands under the heavens, from there the Lord will gather you and take you back. Or maybe jump ahead after those couple of sukim, because the end, uh, the last, the Yached Levain was also interesting. Yeah. Um, your righteous one, I mentioned the house of David, appear in your glorious majesty over all the dwellers of earth, and let all who breathe declare the Lord God of Israel is king, and his kingship has dominion over all. Amen. Selah. And also the part, right, where we ask God to turn us all into mitzvah observers, right? Yes. So it, that's it, part of the, the once to the ingathering of the exiles. I guess this is uh, our first introduction of the idea. There's a strong messianic undertone to this prayer. Um, first, by recognizing that we have it, by referring to it as the first flowering of the promised redemption, um, in gathering, bringing from the four corners of the earth, and then it says, the Lord your God will bring you to the land, your ancestors possess, and you'll possess it, and he will make you prosperous and numerous, and then unite our hearts to love and revere your name and observe all the words of your Torah and swiftly send us the Redeemer from the house of David. So maybe we should start with that point about uh, the Redeemer. Why this language of the first flowering of our redemption? What, what do you think is going on there? So there's... Um, I. We're celebrating 70 years since the Declaration of Israel's independence. And one of the most controversial points is a separate podcast in and of itself is the, on the role of religion in the Declaration of Independence. And the only way that it was acti- actually slipped in there was a reference to Sur Yisrael near the end. And we see that this the is— The rock of Israel. The rock of Israel. That, that was a, 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 we, we lean on the rock. I mean, I grew up where the rock was a, a bank in the United States. Prudential, prudential to be rock, exactly. Lean on the right. rock. Um, and this rock was a vague enough term to those people who wanted to uh, have it referred to a deity. It was a deity, and other people said it was more tradition. So here we have, the, it begins with Avinu Shabashamayim, our God in heaven, rock of Israel and redeemer, and then says, that proclaims that this state of Israel is a first flowering of a, of a redemption that was anticipated. And I think that is actually one of the first offensive lines that rubs a streak of, uh, of the Jewish people the wrong way. Who, who believed for a long time that they had to have a much more passive role when it came to um, Jewish history, to bringing the Redeemer about. And therefore, when, they, when, they, when, when the authors put this, um, this, this idea in there, or these, this language in there, they were saying that this was beginning a process, a positive process, that would lead to the complete uh, fulfillment of a prophecy that peace would come and the, the Jewish people would return. So th- this kind of, for those who really... We're connected to this very long history of what of like rabbinic caution vis-a-vis messianism and messianic movements. Even this language was seen as somewhat problematic. 
so I think, yes, the answer is yes. But um, let me introduce that. Let, let's introduce that historical problem. You would think that if you are suffering um, the shadow of the Holocaust and you've had oppression and a good times come, then you'll say, oh, this, we're clear to go. This is really a good sign for us. But unfortunately, over the past several hundred years, there were un, uh, terrible incidents that happened. And then a seeming reprieve came and a leader would arise and say that this is now the beginning of the Messianic era. And then it would unfortunately lead to um, bad results. The most famous of them is Shabtai Tzvi, um, a historical point where it seemed to be turning a corner for a lot of the anti-Semitism or, or uh, the oppression that they were, they, they were, Jews were under. And when they came out of it, they were like, okay, this is going to maybe lead them back to their land. So there's a, a lot of whiplash or, or, or uh, baggage that a lot of people were coming out of, specifically the Shoah, to say this this historical events of the United Nations saying, okay, there should be a Jewish state in 1947, that they're saying, wait a minute, it's, it's a little too early for us to say this is, okay, the Messiah is on its way coming because that, that's what the text is saying. If you're saying this is the first flower, this is the first footsteps um, of the Messianic era coming. So I want to say two things. So number one, it's interesting. I imagine there was some sense of because the Zionist movement, especially then, was so predominantly secular, to ascribe a Messianic posture, even in a small way, to a movement whose leading representatives were secular, right? David Ben-Gurion was not out there with the Shulchan Aruch uh, advocating He was there with the Tanakh. He was definitely carrying a Tanakh. Tanakh. You're a good defender. But the point is, I imagine for some, that also rankled, that you're going to associate uh, a messianic dream with with a movement that had been so associated with secularism. Uh, And I'm also curious to know whether there were any rabbis who felt this language was too soft. Was there anybody out there who said, wait a minute, what do you mean just the beginning of the flowering? Let's just say we're here. This so, is it. Correct. I, well, I think that's, let's answer your, answer your questions in order. The first reality is that for a lot of people, they, are, they, are, they came out of it through um, a traditional experience. And I'd say that for a majority of them, not just some, a majority of them put the brakes on when it came about. But the, the, what happened over the, the decades before 1948 um, um, saw a, a radical shift in people's approach. I'll use one example. Um, Mizrahi. Okay, Mizrahi is seen as a traditional political party. Of religious t- Zionist. Of movement. religious Zionist. So a- another party that f- came out of it was the Aguda, or, or as it's referred to, Aguda. And they were anti-Zionist. They or were at the, least none, right? No, no, they were, they were anti-Zionist. They came out to say, this is wrong. This is, you shouldn't do this. You, and they would include the religious Zionists as being heretics. They, they took a stance. But what happened after the Shoah, okay, after the Holocaust, that they took a much more non-Zionist stance. So whereas a majority of the religious world in Europe, okay, and then also, translating also to what happened in Palestine, pre-state Israel, was a reality that people were, they were not fans because of what you said, Svi, is because of the leadership was seen as heretic, secular, um, uh, revolting against tradition. But what happened when they came here, okay, and the need to cooperate because of the, the need to get together in the land caused many people, specifically the Aguda party, to eventually join the Knesset. Okay, now they're not sending all their kids to the army, and they definitely do not agree with a lot of the things that maybe the government of Israel is doing, but they came partners in this process and, 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 and I think even argued for it, whereas there's a slice of people, a population, and it's best expressed by um, uh, the Satmar community, who they reject the Zionists. They remain anti-Zionist, 
Um, and therefore, and they still take a stance where the typical um, group that's always referred to is Nitorikarte, this um, one small sect within it where they will not even become citizens, they will not pay taxes, they will not receive any discounts, would recognize the state of Israel, which shifted dramatically to be a minority opinion, a very slight minority opinion. To your second point, there were other people who were seen it as this is, they really thought that the Messiah really was coming, that this was a sign that six nations are declaring war and Israel was able to survive. Um, you see this much more in 1967, in, the, in June, at the end of the war, that there was this almost religious fervor amongst the more ultra-Orthodox community that they thought with this miraculous six-day victory that— Well, not ultra-Orthodox, I think you mean, right, religious Zionists. No, you saw in that day afterwards, you see people wondering, and they completely shut it down. It took two days. They realized that, the, you know, the donkey did not come down from the Mount of Olives of Messiah, but they felt that for that moment. It did not translate into political power or political movement. Um, and therefore, the, 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 the three mainstream positions are either you are really, uh, really a Zionist, you are a non-Zionist, that you would passively recognize that some good things are happening here, um, and you are uh, the smaller group is uh, anti-Zionist. And therefore, it's reflected in practice in the religious Zionist community. Of course, they're shouting proudly, pr- loud and proud, the, the prayer for the state of Israel. Um, it will be printed up in their siddurs. Um, and whereas the non-Zionist community you travel into, it's a big question whether it would be said um, and whether they would say it, um, whether they would pr- protest. Um, they would say it if you took out this line of first flowering of the promised redemption. That would be okay for them. Um, and I see it's, again, I mentioned it's more common that you'll see that a lot of these uh, synagogues or shuls, they'll definitely say the prayer for the soldiers because they realize they have a vested interest in the defense of the, of, of the land and they're, they're protecting them. Um, and protecting the, the, the Jewish population that's here. But they're not quite there that they're, they want to pray for the, the government. Which, of course, is, is even, I don't want to say amusing, but there's a long tradition of praying, of diaspora Jews praying for the government that they're living under, whether it's the United States or England or France or so on. So in, in many instances, you've got uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews who, for the first time as a community, are not saying a prayer for the government because that government happens to be a secular Correct. Zionist there's, government. There's understood to be as there's actually a prayer, a requirement to pray for the government that you're under. Uh, Mishnah in vote Ethics of, uh, of Our Fathers, says that you have to pray for the welfare of the government, um, and therefore uh, a prayer was instituted. And I think many people go around. I, I, I used to be a member of a synagogue in America that said a prayer for the American government and the American soldiers serving, as well as the prayer for the state of Israel and Israeli soldiers. But the prayer for the welfare of the state is noticeably vague. It's par, very, very, uh, very different than the emotion in verses. And it starts out just one line from it who gives salvations to kings and dominion over rulers. It just starts with, you know, Hanotein, this, this vague passiveness to want, pray for it. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to raise in this conversation is the sincerity involved in this prayer. Because the, the Jews who wrote this prayer um, for the welfare of the state were living under tyrannies. They were living under kings who had total power over their lives and could push them around. And they're praying to bless and guard and exalt this, His Excellency when there's a little bit of insincerity in that because, you know, it reminds me of that line from the best half of musical, uh, Filler on the Roof, all the good songs are on the first half. What's the blessing? Wow, for we're th- not going to nest. I'm not endorsing that view right now. Oh, but. no, no, it's a, it's a great musical. It's sad. The second half is very sad. You only remember the good things Some from the first Some people half. like sad. But let's keep going. Yeah. Um, so, what's the blessing for the czar? Right, that he may be healthy and well and far away and far from away us. Far away from us. And that's what the, the prayer comes out to be with one small line at the end, and a redeemer shall come to Zion. There's like one small hope that we'll be able to be eventually go back to our homeland. So if I understand you correctly, both the designers and the objectors 
all understood that this prayer for the state of Israel was not simply a carryover. Uh, well, we always prayed for the governments we lived under. We will pray because governments maintain social order and keep the peace. So we're going to pray for them, and we might we'll pray for the Israeli government the same way. But this is something else, right? This was an expression of uh, a real belief or hope that what was happening here that this government of Israel and Zionism and the success in building a state was indeed the beginning of something very, very big and important for the Jewish people. And that was understood both by those who said it and both and those who resisted saying it. They knew something different was going on here. And that's the catch-22 that, that Halacha presented. If the, everyone agrees that you have to say a prayer for the welfare of the government you live in, okay, and suddenly these non-Zionists are to become citizens under a government they don't agree with, what prayer are they going to right. say? Especially, though, the authors of this prayer, though, as you pointed out, did not leave this in neutral, as you were, parved language. The way They did not talk about the state of Israel the way Jews spoke about the Queen of England. They deliberately and passionately put in language that expressed something much bigger. Visionary. And that is presumably what turned off those who did not see things that way. So let's turn now. So we understand the debate in Israel about this, and I guess if we wanted to, we could say the same debate about how to relate to Yom Atzma'ud itself uh, is a reflection of this as well, which communities right. celebrate it as a religious day, which don't, uh, and, we could, and, and we'd probably be able to draw a line linking these things, right? If you went to a synagogue that skipped this prayer, you probably have a fair guess that they're not reciting Hallel, the traditional uh, prayer of Thanksgiving, on uh, on that, that day, is correct. and then if you found a place that took out some lines from this prayer, then maybe they're saying hollow without a blessing. You know where we're going with all these different mm-hmm. gradations. The question I want to ask you now, I want to turn to as an Aliyah professional, and someone who has a lot of contact with the American Jewish world, what do you make of synagogues reciting this prayer as written, the flowering of our redemption, asking God to return all those Jews in the diaspora or in exile, and as soon as they are finished saying this prayer, know full well they are not going home, and after Shabbat, calling you, Mark Rosenberg, or any representative of Nefesh Benefesh, say, that's it, let's make our plans. I just related to Israel as being the flowering of my redemption. I need to get out of uh, Tinek and get on a plane uh, with the help of Nefesh Benefesh and uh, return to my land. It's a great question. I'm in the United States uh, and Canada about six or seven times a year, part of my job of traveling and meeting with people, and I have the pleasure of spending um, Shabbat in uh, lots of great communities. Um, and it's, it's a tug, I feel. It's amazing. In fact, I find some, some shuls I'm in, there's a, a, a low pulse to a lot of the shul. Um, there's some, the, the Torah reading will happen, and some people will pay attention, some people will read, and then they'll finish the Torah reading, and it's time for the prayer of the state of Israel. And the congregation will sing it out loud together with a fervor that I had not heard at any other moment in the davening, that they'll say the prayer for the soldiers, and they, they feel that it feel comes alive to them. Are, are you saying that the people are being insincere by this? Are you I, saying I'm, that? No, I'm, not, I'm going to say, are we, are we wondering, is there hypocrisy to it? I think there's an element that is really paradoxical about it. Um, and I think that that paradox is, is, is um, not just about aliyah. It reflects to a, a, a spectrum of Jewish values. I think that the options on the table is to cut it out, number one. And that's not an option, because to disconnect a messianic 
Um, and I use that word uh, very carefully because I, I, I'm cautious and I have a closing point to talk about my feelings about messianic movements. But to, to say that we're not keeping our, our Jewish values linked to the project that is Israel and our return to Israel is a very drastic statement. And, to, and currently today, um, even through with the, the current conflicts about Israel and the debates that are going, it, it is still nurtured in many synagogues that debate without cutting it off. So the, the dress, how do you include the prayer, the prayer for Israel in there? Option number two is what many liberal schools have done, is they have taken out the entire paragraphs that actually says that um, they really are praying for our brothers who are scattered in the lands. Um, and I took it out of one of the shuls, uh, one of the sidurim that was from, um, it's at the bottom right here, Mishkan, uh, Mishkan Fila, okay. which I think is, is it the reform movement? It is the reform sidur. So uh, just to be clear, just so everyone following along, it, it speaks about protecting, uh, protecting, bless the state of Israel, which marks the dawning of hope. Mm-hmm. It takes out the messianic language for all who seek peace. And then it talks about protecting it, but it removes the paragraph about bringing in all the Jews from the exile. I, and one and say has an integrity to say, um, listen, we, this, this, we love the Israel. We're not necessarily hoping to meet, be brought back at that point. Um, and is that saying it's insincere of the congregations that are fervently singing, uh, singing this point? So why didn't the Orthodox synagogues make the same move? Is right. it just because the, the non-Orthodox did it first, so it was too late, or they don't want to do it? Well, I think that's one of the questions I guess. I, you know, uh, we talk about a little bit of controversy. If you ask someone, is it a mitzvah to make aliyah, um, you go to certain liberal shuls, or the, you know, I ask a lot of my Ramah friends, and they would say, for sure it is, okay? Because a mitzvah often is translated as a good deed. And they'll say, of course, it's a great thing. It's a great thing for the Jewish people. It's a great thing for you to do. Wonderful. If you, if you go to an, an, an Orthodox and say, is it a mitzvah to make aliyah? The answer would be? Well, either yes, and I feel guilty, or no, it's not really. Well, it depends. They'll say, it depends. It's, not, it's never quite, quite an answer. It depends. It was a, it, they'll say, it's a mitzvah ase, it's, it's a kiyum. Meaning either a positive uh, commandment positive, marks you so, saying, my audience may not always follow these uh, uh, no, halachic definitions It's good here. to expand, uh, expand the thinking about it. They'll, they'll, they'll hem and haw and split some hairs about whether it's a mitzvah or not. And I think that that is the point that it raises that value and raises that dissonance that is there. The ritual that connect us to the land of Israel are spread throughout Jewish tradition. And I'll just, I'll just mention two. One is at the end of the Passover Seder. Okay? At the end of the Passover, we say, next year in Jerusalem. Now, I had a great Aunt Miriam, a lovely woman, lived to be 92. In the middle of matzah ball soup at our Passover, she screamed out, next year in Jerusalem. Well, like, did Aunt Miriam just become a Zionist? She wanted the Seder to be over. She knew that those were, that was the magic, magical formula to say, and that meant everyone's going home. Okay? She wasn't planning to, get, to buy a ticket to Israel. But we, they've anchored in the tradition to realize at the end of the Passover Seder, we want to express that this is something real for us, whether people realize it or not. But you know what? I'm going to be devil's advocate for a moment. I'm, I'm imagining a 10-year-old kid in Philly uh, finishing the Seder who knows full well that if they want to be in Jerusalem next year, they could be. It's very simple today. You get on a plane and you go, and you're there. This is not the medieval Jew uh, fantasizing about uh, a rebuilt Messianic Jerusalem. This is about a 21st century Jew knowing full well that they could be in Jerusalem. And I'm wondering, when, when they, they finish that as part of the script, right, mm-hmm. why should that kid take that seriously? And, and isn't that going to have the rebound effect of him not taking any of it seriously? Because he's saying, you guys are singing this with fervor, but you don't mean it, because if you meant it, you would do it. So I think that part of the reality is that we see just about 3,800 North Americans who are saying they want to be part of that story. That's the Aliyah rate from North America. most 
don't. A majority. That's point most, zero one percent. But most who are singing Lashana Habab Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem don't really want next year in Jerusalem, unless we're going to say, as I in, in some circles, it means next year in a perfect messianic Jerusalem, nothing less. Not the Jerusalem of today, where there's still conflict and strife and and, and problems with garbage removal and which education. Was the, which was the anti-Zionist position. They right. that there, we, we when need I to say have next year in Jerusalem, position. I mean the the perfect rebuilt messianic Jerusalem. But many, most of the Jews you are meeting in these various synagogues do not mean that at the Seder. So what do they mean, and what do you want them to mean well, as an Aliyah professional? So um, I ask you a question. You're asking me a question. So I ask my Very question. What was, what was the proposed? What was the proposed um, national anthem of Israel that was not Hatikva by the religious Zionists? Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. Incorrect. It was not written really? yet. Really? Oh, in 1967, they wanted to change they it. They wanted over. to change it. Correct. Oh, before that, they wanted Shira Malo. They wanted the song of ascent that is commonly said at the beginning of Bar Kamazon that says, "We were like dreamers when we returned." So the response that is given is that a lot of people are sleeping when it comes to this. Asleep at the wheel. Um, unaware of their values. And it's not just about Aliyah when it comes to this. It comes about maybe justice in the social justice in their community or, or perfecting the societies that are in, um, maybe guarding the Sabbath that they are maybe more casual than they should be. Um, and when it comes to the larger nationalistic levels of what it means to be um, a part of the Jewish people, they are sleeping. And I think that's the, actually the tale that is really being told of, of, of Zionism is because when, when going back to Herzl um, and, 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 and the, the rise of secular Zionism was the answer to the question when Napoleon sees the Jewish people in France and says, are you a religion or are you a nation, okay, trying to understand whether he should emancipate, give full rights to French Jews, he says to them, that's so their response is, we're a religion. They say religion. Now, they say they're a religion because if they said they were a nation, he was going to kick them out of France. Right. Okay, so they didn't have so much of a choice of it. But, and they, the, but the response of the French Jews, there, they say, actually, we have more in common with a French non-Jew than a British Jew. Okay, because they want to make the statement that because language and culture. And whereas Herzl, one of the, th- the statements that he made very much, and Rav Rhines and, uh, and all, Rav Cook and all the religious Zionists said this, no, we're both. Where are people that are a religion and a nation? And when, when you struggle with that, um, some people's affiliation, I'd say, in North America with Judaism often comes into a religious or a, a puritanical context of it. So therefore, if they say on a puritanical level that they love Israel, they say they make the statement, which is, again, a very puritanical way of making that pledge, then they fulfilled the, their obligation or allegiance for them. It does not lead an action upon it. But what we see where people who heed the call of Aliyah or make that step to be super spurs. There's an action that's upon, upon them, and it leads them to be part of this unfolding story. The first chapter's already begun. We're in part, that part of the story, and they're seeking ways to send their kids on Aliyah, to support funds in Israel that are part of it, to help bring about a more pure society. And that's, I think, that, that's, that's the way that I understand this, is that a lot of people are just sleeping when it comes to this national story. So American Jews who say, I follow all the news, I donate money, I visit all the time, I send my kids on programs, are they asleep or are they participating in the story? I I think that is a level of participating. Again, you said a line that I would think I would would be judgmental, say I would not agree with you. I can't look into the hearts of people about what they're going to do. I could look in the actions that people do. Listen, it's, it's not a pretty picture what's going on in North America. A majority of North American Jews have never been to Israel once. That's after birthright where 300,000 students have come to Israel. So they haven't even visited Israel ever. So I have to say that, that it's, it's really telling about that connection. 
Now, those people who have, and they have that connection, and following Israel, and they, 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 they have that expression there, that, that's a zikah. That's, a, that's sometimes a, a loose uh, thread that's connecting, but that, that connection is alive. And I think that that is, that is to be praised. And so your strategy then would be not to sort of draw a line in the sand and say choose, but you're saying anything that maintains a connection, even if it's paradoxical, even if it's not perfectly consistent, better they should say next year in Jerusalem at the end of the Seder, even if at that time they don't fully mean it, because that at least plants a seed that maybe another year they will mean it. I think it's part of a process, and I think that any mitzvah, if we said, okay, I'm an expert in Shabbat or Kashrut, things I don't think I would ever become an expert in, then we would say it's never a zero-sum game to me. It's not all or nothing. We'd say some people are into this part of it, and they're trying to get there, but it's, it's a core value. Okay, it's Israel, Eretz Israel is a core value. And that's why it's amazing when you see that there's a gradual change in the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox community of Israel, that has become much more... And they don't either Tzioni. They become much more Zionistic about it. They're, the new generation is speaking much more Hebrew, and, and, and smartphones is helping with that as well. But you see that there's a much more of an integration, and it's also leading to a greater sense of unity about how to share the common public space. We don't have it perfect. We've got our problems about it. Um, that's for sure, as any society. And that's why it's important to pray for it. It's important to pray for it. I have I have uh, friends who, after the disengagement from Gaza, that was in two thousand and five. Yes. Okay. Six. And the, the, the response was, "Oh, I have to stop saying the prayer." You know, I, I didn't like what the Israeli government did. Okay, I think it was reversing the first flower. I, I, I shouldn't say the prayer anymore. And the response I heard was very good. It's all the more reason you should pray for them so that the leaders are guided to make good decisions. Or I imagine people from the other side who feel, I don't like Israel's policy in the territories, or here and there, I'm going to stop praying for them. And again, the response is, don't end the connection just because you're not happy with... You should pray for more light. And that's what we're saying. The shlach or chav, amit chav. They need more light. They, they need to be guided the way. And that's why the, the grounding prayer is, the reality is, that you need to say something. You need to say something for the reality that we're in that will get us to where we want to go. Which, in your mind, it's clear where we want to go is? Eretz Israel, to the land of Israel. So, professionally and personally, you're committed to the ultimate goal of getting as many Jews to come here as possible. But at the same time, if I understand you correctly, educationally, strategically, you think it's a very bad idea to make an all-or-nothing, zero-sum game and tell either you're all-in or you're all-out, but better to provide a spectrum or a range for people to buy in in their own way with the hopes that maybe it's going to deepen and move to something else. I believe, I, I agree with the, the latter of what you said, maybe the process part of it. Um, the founder of Nefesh Nefesh, my boss, Rabbi, Rabbi Shofas, um, realized that there's this idea of Aliyah choice. That you can never, re- no longer can we refer to this idea as like, it's horrible. I know someone who was in, a, they were recruiting for a summer program. They were in San Diego and La Jolla. And they're like, it's horrible here in the diaspora. You must come to Israel. And you look out in La Jolla, it's beautiful there. Yeah, I like La Jolla. Okay? You go to places, like in my family in, in, uh, in Westchester, and I go, go visit people, and uh, you mentioned Tina. There are beautiful communities. Okay? There, there are beautiful, beautiful places. Um, but the, the relation to it has to be of choice. And you look historically. You look historically. What happened with the destruction of the first temple and the ret- first return to Zion, Shivat Zion, was that people had the choice to come back. Cyrus the Great. He's great because they gave him the choice to come back. What percentage of people came back? They think less than 10% came back. But the whole glory of the second temple period was built for that, and we know about that, and we, and we have that. And it, it relates to a, a different topic, and I, I just want to touch it, but I, it's, it's a big topic, is that the activity 
of the diaspora communities, okay, when it comes to contribution to the Jewish world, pales in comparison to the creativity and energy that the Jews in Israel are able to create. When there's a disaster, God forbid, in Haiti or something, the state of Israel will send a field hospital there with doctors and equipment and leave it there. The Jewish American community will raise donations and send people, and they have volunteers who do go as well. The response of the nation to be able to make that impulse is drastically different, and the impact that it can have to sanctify God's name, to bring glory to the Jewish people, to perfect the world, tikkun olam, all these Jewish values, the idea of nationhood allows us to affect that change much more. But I just want to return back to your question is, I believe that you ha- it has to be a choice. It may never be 100%, okay? I, I think that everyone has to explore the options of Aliyah. It's, it's definitely there to choose. It's easier than ever to do it. Um, it's hard, and it's hard from family. There's a lot of buts that, you know, but what about this? Well, what about my job, my career? But it's, it's, there is an obligation to explore that connection um, because it really is an undeniable part of um, the Jewish process of values and redemption. Do you think, and this is uh, my last question for you, I think, that because the state of Israel exists and because a vibrant, sort of complete national Jewish life is possible, that the ability to live in the gray of are we a religion, are we a nation, that when Israel didn't exist, we didn't really have to worry about defining that too much. But now, because Israel exists, the choice is now on the table for these generations of Jews about how they're going to define. And in a way, maybe some of them sort of understand or intuit that by not seeing their future here, they are redefining their Jewish identity away from a national definition. And that we are witnessing, I'm not saying this with pride, I'm saying this with concern, that in a way, because Israel exists, it is forcing the hand of contemporary world Jewry to almost decide how they understand Jewish identity. And if that's the case, are we, are we set up now for... Uh, some kind of real, real divide, a, a scary divide between uh, Jews in the land and Jews outside the land. I think you have a very astute analysis to me. Well, finally, someone. I agree with you. I'll be sure to tell your wife. Um, let me say this: that if you look historically, uh, going, going back to, to Herzl's time, um, emancipation was a was a, was an amazing moment where Jews were forced to be religious and forced to be traditional because no one wanted the Jews to assimilate. Emancipation opened it up, and for the first time ever, Jews could move out to be. Doctor, no, not right away to be doctors, but they could move into apartments and across town. They could say, I don't want to be associated with Jews anymore. And there was an expectation that anti-Semitism would disappear. Okay? But it didn't. And that was bothersome. It was bothered Herzl. And that's why Herzl said, wait a minute, it's not going away. Okay? And if they keep on, if, if I'm no longer religious and they still don't like me because I'm Jewish, okay, maybe there's something more to it. And he had the conclusion that there was a need, okay, for a political safe space for the Jewish people. And that's when he founded the First Zionist Congress in 1897. He stood up there and said, we need a homeland because the biggest danger to the Jewish people is anti-Semitism, and we need a solution as a safe haven, which is why he was willing to entertain Uganda, where it would have been really hot to do that podcast Yeah, that in Uganda. sound good to me. But what is, I think is often lost in this conversation, and this is sort of a, hopefully a, a, a thread of positivity, is that a man named Asher Ginsberg stands up. Okay, an author, he wrote on the name, his pen name was Achada Am, uh, Average Joe, maybe a way to translate it. Achada Am said, no, Herzl, you're wrong. The biggest danger to the Jewish people is not anti-Semitism, it's assimilation. But not assimilation like we think that intermarriage. He says that Judaism doesn't seem relevant to us anymore. 
And therefore, the, the way that we will be saved is that we need to find a way to make Judaism more relevant to people. And the best way to do it is to establish a cultural center in our historic homeland and bring about the language again and, and make that roots. And it's amazing. It was actually the same, uh, same idea of Rabbi Avraham, Avraham Kuka Kohen, okay, the, the, the spiritual leader of religious Zionism. The same idea. If you spend a little time in Israel, maybe 10 days on a birth trip, it will give you a spark of holiness to live a more fulfilled Jewish life, even abroad. And the, therefore, so, so much of what we see today is cultural Zionism, a base for Israel to be, uh, not Israel, for, for Israel to be a base for your Judaism, for that Jewish experimental space. And I think that's why so many people come to parties to experiment that, um, to experiment with those ideas. And it gives them a, a laboratory to think about how they're going to be Jewish in the rest of the world. What I think is scary, and I, I share your concern, is that when people no longer are literate in our religious level, on, on, a, on a literary level religiously, um, they don't feel comfortable in the Sidur or in the synagogue, okay? and they no longer feel comfortable with Israel because of political divides, it leaves them in a never space where they don't understand necessarily Jewish history okay? and, or, or, or some, some of the maybe Jewish neighborhoods. And that reality leaves people often to move away from Jerusalem. Not, not always. Some people are able to be in that great space. But what, what I think the grounding of the Zionist project, and I think the reason that I pray for the state of Israel, is because it is forcing a reality where it's no longer even safe for the, the religious people to hide in their small little um, neighborhoods where they're keeping their religion as a way just to keep that fire on, okay, without expressing any of that, any of that life beyond those four walls. And I love going to the shuk, and you see that everyone intermingling, and, and there, there's, there's some beauty to the, the creativity that comes ab- about that life. Um, and you can do that in your community. It's just very, very harder to do it in North America. And what I think Israel, the reality state of Israel, is forcing people to connect with Hebrew music okay, and Hebrew literature, and it's very hard to do it without the Hebrew language because the, the big conversation, the great ideas of the Jewish people are happening in Israel. And I think that is that that is that is the conclusion that it's it's a it's a imperfect balance now. Um, it's now that Israel is seventy years old between the creativity and thoughts of the Jews living in Israel, and the reality of how to sustain that life outside. Well, look, I imagine there are many American Jews that would say that when it comes to uh, different movements in Judaism and uh, an American Jewish culture, that it's a lot more vibrant and interesting that maybe Israelis would give it credit for. But I still think that. In terms of what you described, the idea that there's a choice emerging, I think, uh, is a little is a little scary in the sense of that the state of Israel forces Jews to sort of position themselves in, ter- in terms of where they stand vis-a-vis the Jewish people as the most obvious and large project of the Jewish people that I can't avoid my relationship with Israel when I want to think about my relationship with the Jewish people. And I think uh, that could lead in a lot of different directions. Uh, and my guess is, from your perspective, it hopefully leads a direction for people to get more involved and more engaged and see Israel as, an, as a real answer to that dilemma. But I suspect that for some, it's going to lead in the opposite direction and, and basically say, that I'm not ready for all that, and that maybe my Jewish identity has to be reconfigured either along more spiritual lines or cultural lines uh, that don't uh, make the national project my because I don't really feel like I'm a part of a nation. So I, I feel like I'm a part of that's, a community. That's, that's a brilliant observation. That's another brilliant observation you have. And I think that's what Israelis, a lot of Israelis are going through. Because a lot of them necessarily don't go to synagogue and say this prayer. They're, 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 not, they're not getting up to Avinu Shabbat Shemayim at the time. They're on the beach on, on a Shabbat afternoon, happy to do it. 
but they're navigating they're navigating that relationship because the realities again we're, I, I feel this is a special time to be here I, I, we're, we're on a podcast the flags of Israel are flying around it's beautifully sunny and blue there's a there's a cloud of history from Yom HaShoah yesterday and already the cemeteries are getting ready with the flowers for the, the, the memorial service there's a feeling that we don't have so much of a choice. We're pushed into these decisions of the reality. And I mentioned, I mentioned the, non, the anti-Zionists that were forced to become Zionists because of it. And there are other people who are navigating traditions that they might not feel comfortable with because we're part of this, part of this collective that is here. You have to navigate that. And I, therefore, I wanted, just to, I wanted just to bring one, of my, one more source in here. Um, actually, I have two. But one is that um, the Talmud, there's the Babylonian Talmud, there's also the, the Talmud Yushalmi, Brings a story about Rabbi Chia the Great and Rabbi Shimon that They were walking in the valley um, by the Arbel. You've been to the Arbel. I have. Right by today. It's a great hike if you haven't been on it. Um, and they're right before dawn. Um, and as they watch the light seeping through, Rabbi Chia says to Rabbi Shimon, This will be the redemption of Israel. At first, little by little, as it goes, it will increase in strength slowly and gradually. There's something about it unfolding and not being super rushed into decisions that allow us to try these identities on and try, try these connections. And we see we grow over time that Israel has grown up a lot. If you, if you turn on the TV in 1950, you only saw white Ashkenazi men, secular white Ashkenazi men. If you turn on the TV today, you saw Kululum. I know some, of your, some of the listeners might Google it, check it out on Facebook. It's an amazing group of singers that get together and they get people from different backgrounds to sing songs that somehow touch on a theme together. Um, and it really brings people together in a great sense. And it's hard to do that in a community outside of Israel. Not impossible. I know Kululum's actually coming to one of the camps this summer. It's not impossible. It's just harder. Um, and therefore, one of the solutions that has emerged over time, um, especially in the reality of history in the, in the 1940s, is that Israel is a place that is um, a, a safe haven, as Herzl wanted to be, but also a cultural center that is spouting out that. And therefore, one has to come to terms and say, what prayer am I going to say on this project? What prayer am I, uh, am I going to say? Is this something that I want to continue? And if I want to get how am I going to change it? Or am I going to be forced to be against it? And the majority is saying that this is a, uh, I like the idea. I just want it to change. So you're optimistic. So let me ask you one last question. When you think to yourself, what makes you feel the most grateful? What are you going to be most grateful for on this Yom Ha'atz move? It's a great question. Thank I think you. that I am, um, I'm, uh, I'm always torn. I think the first gratefulness I have is for a lot of the soldiers. Um, I, I, again, a stark difference between growing up in North America as 19-year-old kids. I was worried about college campuses with my 15 hours a week in class um, and the 19-year-olds that are protecting me. I have, I have a great um, appreciation for the people that are sacrificing their time um, to make sure that we're, that we're, that we're safe. Um, and I have, uh, I have a really great appreciation for just uh, being in the times that we live in. I think that, um, the, again, I spent a lot of time thinking about this on Yom HaShoah and the choices that people had to make, uh, life or death choices, saying goodbye to family and what to do to save their lives. And we are blessed in a time that is not no simple. I'm reading the news. It's, these aren't some simple decisions. But we have the ability to maybe control our choices much more. And it makes me appreciate the choices I've made to get married and to build a family and to be in the neighborhood and community that I'm in and to be able to give at the work I do and my community. Um, those are, that's a great appreciation that I have. Okay, so uh, we're going to close. I want to thank you very much, both for all your, the work that you do and for the work you also do at Pardes and being part of this podcast. I think that uh, it's great that there are people like you out there who really believe uh, and are still passionate about the centrality of 
this project we call the State of Israel, there's so much cynicism and so much critique and so much struggle. Uh, it's nice that there's some people out there who really believe that if you're not here, you're missing out maybe on some level, or if you're not even checking this out, you're missing out. Whether you're going to move here or not is a separate question, but if you're not even engaged with the possibility of what's here, then maybe you're missing out on something very, very special. On that note of missing out, I just went in with one of my favorite sources. It says that um, it's a, uh, a, they took it from Avot the Rebbe Natan, it's a source, um, that Rebbe Yochanan was, uh, used to say that if you're holding up a sapling, you're about to plant a small tree in the ground, and someone says, hey, the Messiah is coming, um, let's go. It's, he, Rabbi Yochan said, first you should plant the sapling, and then you should go receive the Messiah. So I bring, want to bring it back to that idea that it's important to have this greater vision, but we have to also have those, those acts that are allow us to kind of get there. Um, and our, our big goal is that we really want to bring uh, a peace to this world, we really want to make the world a better place, but we have to take our smaller actions that are building it, and I think my part um, is teaching, and also the work that I do is, is, is the part that I can do with planting my sapling. Terrific. So on that note, with many samplings planted uh, and more to be planted in the future, uh, thank you very much, Mark. And I wish all of you a meaningful Yom Hazikaron, uh, in remembrance for Israel's uh, fallen, and a certainly wonderful and joyous and meaningful Yom Hazikaron. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D dot pardes, P-A-R-D-E-S dot O-R-G.